So today is lunchtime learning, and we're going to spend some time today talking about behavioral economics or behavioral finance, however you want to think about it, um, but not from the, um, you know, more what's, what are some sort of cool and interesting experimental studies that have come out of academia, but uh, more on what are these concepts and how do they apply to your work? What, is, what can you take away from the uh, theories and the findings in behavioral economics and in behavioral finance that might be useful in your work as a family financial educator. So today I'm going to be referring to a brief that is posted on the Lunchtime Learning website, which is fyi.uwex.edu slash financial theories. Um, and on the financial theory site, you'll see on the, on the main page there, there is a, um, a little green box with the issue brief called Insights from Behavioral Finance and Economics for Financial for building financial capability. Um, as always, each of these calls, each month we have a brief, and then these calls are recorded, and the MP3s of these recordings are posted um, on this same website in that little green box. Um, so you can, if you want to go back and listen to this later, you can, or if you have colleagues that want to tune in later, they can as well. Um, and we'll, we'll keep these up sort of indefinitely or in, in, until they disappear uh, from some technological glitch. Um, and just recall the lunchtime learning series is designed to be a way to get up to speed on some current topics in family financial edu education. Um, these are different from our uh, building buck series, which um, are, take place on the opposite Mondays. And we um, the building bucks really focus on some of the basic building blocks of financial education, the how-tos, as opposed to more of the sort of up-and-coming issues, which is what the financial series is about. So. Any questions about the series for anybody who might be new to this before I get going into today's topic? Well, I thank everybody for being online, and today we're going to talk about this behavioral finance and economics topic. Um, this is a very popular in the media, sort of as a, it's a pop topic in, in, in uh, academia these days, um, in part because the findings are a little bit contrary to, to where the field has been traditionally, and also there's sometimes... Um, kind of interesting. The experiments are sort of quirky or innovative, and, and the findings sort of resonate with people. They seem to explain some behavior that they themselves might be puzzled about. Uh, traditional economics, you know, if you if you hearken back to Econ 101 a long time ago or pick up an Econ 101 textbook, talks a lot about how people make rational, informed choice, and that people weigh costs and benefits, and that they use that to make a decision. If the costs outweigh the benefits, they don't do it, and if the benefits outweigh the cost, then, then they go for it, and if they're even, you know, they could go either way. And spend a lot of time thinking about what's the marginal cost and what's the marginal benefit of each each particular thing that might take part in. Um, I think most econ textbooks today would um, have some caveats about how this actually works for people that, I mean, obviously we don't have perfect information. We have the amount of information that we can reasonably acquire and, and assimilate to make a decision, so we don't have perfect information. And we, you know, make our choices in the context of other choices, and sometimes we put more or less energy into weighing these costs and benefits. But by and large, this is a model of how, how humans behave, is, is this sort of basic rational choice theory that we see a lot in economics. And this assumes uh, some other things, too, like if you like black licorice today, Tomorrow, you'll also like black licorice and vice versa. If you don't like it, you won't like it. Sort of people have sort of consistent preferences over time. Um, that people 
are um, behaving as if they know where they're headed in life. So if you are a young person and you think you're going to have high income later in life because you think you're really smart or because you're enrolled in, a say, a program to become a doctor or some high-paying occupation, it might make sense for you to take on more debt today. And uh, if you, in fact, are going into a lower compensation area, you might take on less debt today. So that sort of people thinking about their um, their lifetime earnings as they make choices about savings and, and investment. <coughs> um, you know, it's, again, by and large, these theories reflect how people do behave in, in, a, in a lot of the time. And they're useful tools, and they're the reason why that we have Econ 101 and why most you know why most students take it is because these are these are helpful frameworks to understand human behavior, to make choices, and, and to think about um, think about some you know both big and small sort of major and macro and micro more micro individual issues that we all confront. Um, but it's not the whole story, and obviously you can all think of times when you've made decisions that. Um, at the point in time you made them were not um, completely rational. They weren't completely informed. When you changed your mind about what you thought was right, what was good, what you valued. Um, and where economics has gained a great deal is from psychology. And psychologists are less less focused on what's rational and more focused on what people actually do and then trying to come up with theories explaining um, why people do the things they do. And particularly social psychology and thinking about how, how people make decisions in the context of other decisions and other people's decisions. Um, but other forms of psychology as well. And the other thing that psychology brings to the table is this idea of the experiment, that we can bring in people, oftentimes students, but hopefully people, uh, who, who um, you know, one group can get one particular kind of treatment, another group gets another kind of treatment, and we can see what the difference is in terms of how people behave. Um, so it's been a... It's been, I think, a good thing for the field, both fields, to sort of have more interaction with each other. Uh, and I think it opened up the eyes of many economists about actually ways we can square the way that economics operates with uh, the way that psychology operates and has become a, a sort of useful cross-fertilization. Now, you'll find plenty of people in both psychology and economics who are uh, not in favor of these blending these areas, but I think those, those resistance are... Um, uh, going down over time, and, and I think by and large, it, it, there's a sense that, that this interaction between the two fields is, is strengthening both. It's not just psychology. I mean, there is some sociology as well about how people interact with each other, how people might follow trends and herds and that kind of thing. And I'll talk about that a bit a while as well, but primarily it's about psychology and economics. Um, so just as an overview, if you're looking for some you know, light summer reading, uh, around these topics. There's a book that came out about a year and a half ago that got a lot of play called Nudge um, by Dick Thaler, who's an, an economist out of Chicago and probably one of the, um, you know, the, the, the first economists to recognize the value of psychology and began to write and think a lot about how economics can, can square some of these issues that, that are raised by psychologists. Um, and his partner was somebody from the Chicago Law School, Cass Sunstein, who's uh, actually been quite influential within the Obama administration, thinking about how we can nudge people to make better decisions regarding health and finance and a lot of other areas. Um, nudge is a very accessible book. It summarizes much of the literature I'll talk about here in probably 200 pages and then has another 150 pages of just examples of how you might actually implement the ideas they put forth in Nudge. Another book, it's a couple years older. It's um, 
by Gary Belsky, who's a, who's a reporter, and then Tom Gilovich, who's a psychologist at Cornell, called Why Smart People Make Big Money Mistakes. Um, there's another one you might pick up. It's a paperback. It's cheap. It's short. Um, but it really talks about um, how some of these behavioral biases can result in people losing money or making choices that are that are ideal over time. Um, and then Dan Ariely, who's a um, social psychologist, and um, I think he's Duke now, but he's um, got a got a great uh, record, and he's frequently on uh, on TV. You'll see him um, you know, being talking about a whole wide range of, pro- of of different kinds of issues, including financial ones. Um, has a book called Predictably Irrational, where he talks about the many ways and the the, the uh, frequency in which people make decisions that aren't all rooted in this rational theory, but but are uh, sort of systematically uh, deviating from what economics might think is the rational theory. So these are again just a few books to to consider as you think about your reading list, <laughs> and most of them are pretty accessible, and I would recommend them in general. So the first uh, concept I want to talk about is called resource slack. You can resource slack is a strange sort of um, metaphor. So I'll, I'll try to play out the metaphor, and then I'll get a little bit more into what's behind it. But so just imagine for a second that you have a piece of string, or you know, for example, right now I have my phone cord in my hand, and I'm holding it with my two fists about six inches apart from each other. And if I pull my two fists apart, the string or the wire in this case, the phone cord gets taut. It gets you know tight, and my hands can't move anymore. If I bring my hands together, it gets short, and uh, there's some slack in the wires. There's some slack in the string. Um, I can move my hands back and forth a little bit. And you think about that sort of that metaphor of the string and, and when it's slack or when it's taut, when things are tight or when things are loose. Um, you can think about the string as being money or being time, that we all have times when things are looser, when we have resources, and we have some slack in that string, and other times when it's tighter, when when things are tight, when there's not much slack in that string, there's not much further you can pull your hands apart. Um, same way with time. Sometimes you're very tight with time. You can't um, can't find more hours in the day. Other times you might have more ability to to let time be a bit looser and be able to move things around a bit. This is a an issue that a number of psychologists have thought about um, quite a bit, and um, Zuberman and Lynch are two um, who've articulated this in, a, in a, the context, especially of how we think about time and money. And you know, they they talk about how when you, if if I gave you a deadline by Friday to get something done, you would that would probably make your time slack this week much less. You would be much more close to being tight. Much your hands would be further apart. Your string would be tight and taut. Um, but then if I told you, oh, no, like, I'll, I'll give you another week, you can move that to next Friday, you could suddenly move your hands together a little bit, you would have more time slack, your your time in the present would be a little looser. However, by uh, making that bargain with you, or you making that bargain with yourself, you've essentially tightened that string for next week. You've uh, taken away slack that you might have had next week. And we do this all the time. We defer, whether it's time or money, we, we take in our, our goal to have more slack today, we uh, end up tightening the uh, string in the future so that we are essentially giving ourselves a little bit of slack today at the cost of, of future slack. And, you know, you can you can play that game just so long, and eventually you, you have to catch up. You have to get things done. You have to pay things back. You have to do whatever it is. And, you know, this, this tendency to always underestimate 
um, just how much tighter we're making things in the future by putting off things today, whether it's money or time. Um, it's pretty consistent that people uh, are generally bad at predicting how much slack they're going to have in the future. And they always think, if I just get a few more days, things will be better then. Uh, when, in fact, things are going to be just as tight then as they are now. Uh, so it's a, it's a very common uh, present bias that, that many of us have, this present focus. Um, and it's important because we find that this present focus is what keeps people from getting things done, from achieving financial goals, from savings. Um, it, people who are more present focused tend to be less likely to invest in things like education or financial education and less likely to save in the present, more likely to borrow um, that then they have to pay off in the future. This is, you know, all part of what we would call procrastination or a self-control problem, essentially not being able to realize uh, in the long run that making a decision today affects me in the future, and I underestimate how much it's going to affect me in the future. And repeatedly, these kinds of decisions that that undermine me in the future can can make me worse off over time, because I may... Me in the future may really wish that me in the present <laughs> doesn't do the things that I do. Um, me in the future may wish that I saved more or exercised more or ate less or name a number of other things that the future you might wish upon the, the current you. So this is a big theme in, in behavioral economics or in behavioral finance, particularly behavioral economics. How do we think about these long-run mistakes that we make because we don't exercise self-control in the present? Um, and there are a number of studies, and um, both more theoretical and then more applied, that try to get some um, formalization around this topic. So what, what happens is that we, we can divide, you can divide sort of crudely all people in the world into two types. The naifs, the people who are naive, they don't recognize they have self-control programs, self-control problems. And then people who are sophisticated people who recognize that they, um, in fact, do have um, self-control problems. Um, the sophisticates try to figure out some way to um, constrain themselves now um, so that they'll um, take care of themselves better in the future. So and a, a, a classic example of this is you know, the pay-yourself-first strategy. If I take the first you know, $100 of my paycheck and put it into savings before I get a chance to spend it, um, I've essentially taken that off the table. Um, so it prevents me from being able to spend that money. Um, there's other kinds of ways that people can um, make commitments today that tie their hands in the future. There's a fairly um, well-known paper in, in this field that talks about Odysseus, who tied himself to the light. He had his uh, sailors tie himself to the mast so he would resist the siren song. That sort of sophisticated approach to realizing that I might have these kind of constraints in the future. So one of the um, one of the ways that this metaphor has been used in psychology is to think about packing, and that people have, essentially have a packing problem. That um, if we both had, say, we were both going on a trip, and we both had a you know a little roller bag that was you know two feet by one feet or something, um, and your bag was full of all your stuff, and my bag wasn't as full of all my stuff, and we both, you know, we're rolling through the airport, and we both saw something we wanted to buy. If your bag was totally packed, you would have to figure out some way to to make room in your already stuffed bag for that extra item. I wouldn't have to spend so much time thinking about it. I could just unzip my bag, throw it in, and roll on. Um, and so this packing problem that we all face is related to this slack issue. How much slack do I have? How much extra space do I have in my in my bag? Um, and so people who maybe have more resources 
don't have to worry as much about these. They have a bigger bag. They can throw their stuff in. They can move on. People who have a smaller bag, um, this becomes a more more um, challenging kind of choice to make. So it's it's probably easy for one of us to say, well, we'll take $100 off our paycheck and put it in savings. If you're uh, you know making half the salaries that we do, um, that might be a tougher choice to make. So we have to think about this also in the context of you know how big that bag is and how hard it is to to pack the resources we have to put in there. Um, one of the um, commitment devices that, um, and this, this is the term that's used in the field, is commitment device, where I, I somehow figure out a way to, to handcuff myself today from uh, betraying myself in the future, um, that we think about are, are things like Christmas accounts or um, even savings bonds. Now, savings bonds are a good example of a product that, um, you know, essentially I'm locking money up for the future. Uh, it's a little bit challenging for me. I can, you know, cash it in early, but I have to go to the bank and go through a process to do that, and I'll even pay a little bit of a penalty for doing that. So it has some some features to it that that make it a little bit harder for me to um, to to uh, get access to these funds. Um, another strategy we see sometimes is called save more tomorrow, which is essentially where you cut a deal, oftentimes with your employer or HR department, but it can just be with yourself that half of any future raise you get goes to your retirement account or goes to your savings. So it's money that you don't have today and um, you know you're you're gonna when the time comes you're gonna forego it and put it into savings rather than spending it. So making these it's a lot easier to make that um, to make that sacrifice of your future self today. Um, so it's one way you can use that to to your advantage. Please remain on the line. The um, another strategy that we've talked a little bit is this idea of external monitoring, and this is, you know, if if you have a procrastination problem, um, one way to force yourself to stay on course would be to make your intentions public. So if you have an intention that you, um, you know, you want to say you want to lose ten pounds, um, and you tell everybody around you that you want to lose ten pounds, they might start to ask you questions about how it's going. Are you losing the weight? Are you sticking to your diet? How's it going? And when maybe when you show up at lunchtime with a big piece of chocolate cake, they say, hey, I thought you were on a diet. Um, so those sort of outside third-party people watching you, um, and it's really just watching you relative to the intentions that, that you made public, um, those can help change your behavior. Um, so in some cases, it's a social cost, like an embarrassment. Um, in other cases, it might actually be, you know, I want somebody to coach me or to actually keep track of what I'm doing. Um, so, you know, financial coaching is a good example of um, how a, uh, an external monitor might work. A financial coach isn't necessarily a financial expert. They're just somebody who holds a client to the goal that the client themselves put forward. So they check in with somebody and say, you know, have you made progress towards uh, whatever it is that said, you said you were going to do, and I'm not going to judge you whether you should or shouldn't have gotten there, but you said you were going to do it. Have you done it? It's just sort of that nag um, to sort of keep track of where people are at and if they're fulfilling their own promises to themselves. I mean, I'll just quickly highlight this website called stick.com, which is a, um, a startup started by some um, behavioral economists um, who tried to you know, put their money where their mouth is and start a company that encouraged people to... Um, you know, put up a commitment to um, maintain a certain behavior. So, you know, people might say that they want to exercise or quit smoking or something like that, and if they fail to do it, they've made a commitment to um, make a donation to a charity that they really dislike. So, you know, that might be uh, 
you know, I think they have a finite set of charities there, but they have, you know, something on that list that you would be, not be happy to make a donation to. Um, and so it's just a way of, of reinforcing that people can stick to their original commitments. So I'm, I'm going to move on in a minute to the top of the mind and, and this whole idea of salience and executive attention, but before I move away from the idea of resource lack and self-control, does anybody have any questions on that topic? So in psychology, there's this whole concept called executive attention, and there's a number of economists who've been thinking about how this affects how people make decisions. That, that in fact, uh, not all of our decisions are ones that we um, spend a lot of time and energy trying to weigh costs and benefits. Sometimes we just do things kind of automatically. Um, you might even say sort of sloppy. Um, other times we um, are, you know, much more deliberate. We we you know, spend a lot of time and energy really thinking about how we make choices. Um, and, you know, there are many choices that we make every day that are really kind of automatic. You know, you walk into a, a restaurant and you might just sort of, you know, not spend a whole lot of time and energy thinking about what you're ordering or how much you're spending. Um, other times you might be much more um, deliberative and, and attentive to how you make those choices. So this idea of top of the mind means how do we take things that you might otherwise neglect or not pay attention to and get them into these sort of executive attention, get them into that um, sort of active working part of, of your thinking and cognition. And it's, it's an interesting field because it doesn't necessarily involve um, giving you more information or different information. It means it's giving you information in a different way so that you pay more attention to it. It's, um, it's, it's a topic that has obviously been thought of quite a bit by people in psychology who think about marketing and consumer behavior. Um, but it's a um, not one that has gotten a lot of attention in, say, financial education or health or other kinds of fields. Uh, but the main idea is to get people to pay more attention. And the more they can bring things to the top of their mind, the, the more they might be able to follow through with whatever it is they want to do. The classic example of this in a number of studies are reminder messages. And these might be uh, a mail message, it might be a text message on a cell phone, it might be an email, it might be a postcard to yourself, uh, a postcard from someone else. But it's basically to remind you about a particular behavior. Um, we had a financial coach once who, her main strategy with her, um, the person she was coaching was to call her every Sunday night to make sure that the person had opened their mail and knew what dues, the bills were due this week. Uh, so that was a simple kind of reminder to get people to pay attention to something that they otherwise didn't want to pay attention to. Um, there's been studies that show that even a simple text message that reminds people about, um, you know, what their goal is. So say, for example, you're saving um, to start a small business or to buy a car or a house. You know, a text message occasionally that says, you know, that the house will be yours soon. You know, keep up your, your savings. can encourage people to save more. And one study, just a... In a three-month period, a handful of uh, these either text messages or um, emails with pictures of the goal encourage people to save up to 9% more than they were before using a randomized design. So it's a, you know, for a really cheap intervention, had a pretty strong impact on the way that, that people uh, behaved. And it turns out that the more vivid the message, so rather than just say, you know, save money today so you can be happier in the future, you know, save more money so that you can have the house on Main Street that has the purple shutters, you know, that more vivid message makes people even more likely to respond and more likely to, to want to be part of it. Another example is just the alerts. So you've probably all seen alerts that can be set up on um, 
account balances. You know, if your account balances go down or when when bills are due, these really seem to have a strong effect on people's behavior. Such thing as these been applied in health as well, and alerts and reminders around things like, um, you know, watching your salt intake for people on, on, with high blood pressure or for people with diabetes to monitor their condition um, can be powerful. Again, it's not new information; it's just sort of reminding people to pay attention uh, and to bring these things to the top of the mind. You can think of lots of ways you could potentially include this in your work: emails that you send out to clients, um, postcards that people send back to themselves. Um, so there, there's lots of simple little ways to, to do this. And again, the more vivid, the more personalized, the more likely people are going to react and, and to be able to bring these ideas back back into their behavior. So I'm going to stop there and see if people have questions on the executive attention and top of mind idea. But it's quiet today. It's too sunny. Um, so the next topic we want to talk um, a little bit about is this idea of the, the analysis paralysis. Um, when we have too many choices, and you probably can all sympathize with this problem. I mean, think of when you go to a restaurant and the menu comes out and it's, you know, as big as a book. Um, it's just too many choices. And this, this happens a lot where we we have too many options. Um, you know, if you look through the investment pages at the various mutual fund choices that are out there, it's really completely overwhelming. And there's lots of markets like this in finance where there's just too many different kinds of products, too many different variations in terms of the the risks and the terms and the conditions and the length and the return. It just becomes impossible to make a choice. Um, so if you ask people, do they want more choices, they usually say yes. But then when they're making a choice, they actually prefer some way to narrow the list down. Um, and it, it, it's a... It takes more energy, it takes more cognition, it takes um, just more time to begin to think about making a choice when you have all these different kinds of um, uh, products. Not only that, I mean, it's easier to make a choice over, I don't know, something that's very standardized, like um, gasoline. I mean, you might think that pretty much every gas station has the same gasoline, and so location being equal you're just going to go by price. Whichever one has the lowest price is the one you're going to go to. You're really just comparing on one dimension. But then when you get into things that are, you know, say a financial product, where it's not just location and price, it's, you know, service, it's quality, it's security, it's a whole bunch of other different things. As we add more and more layers, more and more dimensions that you want to compare, it becomes more and more difficult to make a choice. And it turns out is that people begin to ponder these different dimensions. They just start to throw their hands up and say, you know what, I'm not going to do anything at all. There's a, a well-known experiment, where it was the JAM experiment, that's cited quite frequently in the literature, where um, people were offered either six gourmet jams or 24 gourmet jams. And it's true that more people stopped at the display in the store when there were 24 jams, um, but only 3% bought, whereas when six, 30% bought. So by limiting the choice that uh, people were, the consumers were better able to make a choice and more likely to purchase the item. Um, so it just, you know, we see this as well as the 401ks. If you're in a company that has a, you know, several hundred 401k investment options, uh, employees are faced with that point in the year when they have to make their investment choices, and they're more likely to do nothing and just go in the default option or not choose at all. Um, so it it uh, it can have profound impacts on how people actually behave. Um, now this can be um, an interesting thing to look at as well that. It's not just that when we have choices that are hard to make, we don't choose or we go for the default. 
Um, there's also this thing called the status quo bias, which is wherever I'm now, I am now, um, doesn't take any work. So if I'm already signed up for the XYZ mutual fund in my 401k plan, um, I don't really have to think about it. But if I have to change, if I'm going to think about changing to a different one, then I have to think about it, and that takes work. And so all else being equal, I don't know what the other thing is, but I'm just happy to stay where I'm at. And so people have this what we call status quo bias. They'll, um, they'll even if sometimes the choice is relatively low, uh, you know, it's not a high stakes choice and doesn't take a lot of energy to make the choice, they'll still sort of stick with with the status quo. Um, and so this this is a very common thing we see where um, you know people will just stick with whatever the baseline is and and not um, you know try and and ponder other choices that might be out there. Um, so what this means is if you are in, you know, whatever the the, um, the default is, whatever the starting point is, is the place that many people will end up staying because they don't want to spend the time and energy to think about making a choice to some other different state. Um, so what? how do you apply these kinds of things? Well, one thing to think about is reducing the number of options. You know, if, if you are giving people some choices in terms of, say, they... Um, say, for example, something simple like setting up a spending plan. We probably all know four or five different ways you can do a spending plan. If you present all four or five, people might be more likely to say, you know what, this is, I can't even decide which one to use, so I'm just not going to do any of them. One way you can help that is by just giving people one type of spending plan. Or give them several, but tell them, this is appropriate if you are like this. And make sure they're all mutually exclusive. So you basically have three different kinds of spending plan strategies, Three different kinds of people. And so people say, well, I'm, I'm number two, so I'm going to do the number two spending plan strategy. Um, so it's a, it's a very simple way to um, help people make these choices by streamlining it. And they can, uh, you know, sort of guide them, their own thinking to where they need to go. Um, you know, it's reducing options oftentimes makes people uncomfortable because you're making choices for people. Um, however, you're always making choices for people. And when you don't make choices for people, you're essentially making choices for people as well because if you give them too many choices, they choose nothing or they choose whatever the default is. So no matter what, you, there is some form of people being steered to particular decisions. Um, so you just have to think about sort of the ways that, that things are are set up and the ways that, that people might have information presented to them. Um, the big uh, example in this field is this issue of defaults, default options and the opt-in versus opt-out. When we um, when we do studies of people in a, a retirement plan program and an employer, it makes a huge difference as to whether when you sign up for the company, when you first take that job and sign your letter, are you automatically enrolled in the retirement plan or do you have to fill out a form to enroll you in the retirement plan? If you're automatically enrolled, 85, 90% of people in the company will have the retirement plan. If you have to fill out a form to enroll in the retirement, it's more like 20%. A huge difference. Um, so this, you know, whatever the default is, whether I have to opt in or opt out can make a huge difference for people. Um, so if you automatically enroll people in something, but give them the option to, um, not do it if they choose not to, um, it can make a big difference in terms of participation rates. Um, so you can think of examples of, you know, people exiting, um, say a financial education program, being able to sign up for a coaching program or for a, for a counseling program or coming out of a, a tax preparation program and being able to sign up for an uh, education workshop. You know, you could just put out a sheet of paper and let people sign up for it, but you know that you're going to have pretty low enrollment rates for that. 
Another would be at the end of the session, you say, we have a, an opening and we're going to spot you in for this date. Do you want to do this or not? Um, you probably get a much higher enrollment rate in that kind of setting. And we find this very frequently with, um, you know, the, the more that you can automate things for people and then give them a choice to opt out, uh, the more likely it is there to say, oh, you know what, I, th I think I'll just give it a shot and I'll, I'll go for it, um, as opposed to having to, to make the effort to opt in, they're most li less likely to do that. Okay, so that's the default option side. Does anybody have any questions on that one? Our choice burden, I guess, would be the, the broader category. How ethical is that opting out in educational programs like ours? Um, well, like I say, it's no more or less, opt, you know, uh, than giving them too many choices or forcing them to opt in. You know, it's it, they're sort of all the same. People have a choice either way. Um, you know, but depending on which one you present first, they're going to be more likely to do that item. But it's all still voluntary. So the next um, issue to think about is, is what we call emotion, or a psychologist calls affect. Affect meaning um, sort of more mild mood as opposed to emotion, which is a broader term, which can incorporate both mild mood as well as more more uh, visceral emotions. Um, but clearly, emotions affect how people make decisions. You all know, you know, you shouldn't make decisions when you're angry or jealous or anxious. Um, but what people don't realize is that even mild emotions can change how you think. Um, there's studies even of physicians that show, um, you know, when physicians are, are um, primed to be in a more positive mood by a very simple thing like a, getting receiving a little bag of candy as a gift, they're more likely to spend more time with patients and to look at more information before making a diagnosis. Um, they're more open to different kinds of information and, and um, more willing to think creatively about solutions. You know, and that's a very, very mild form of, of positive mood, just from a you know bag of hard candy. Um, and we see this in lots of different contexts where um, you know people uh, on sunny days, stock markets perform better on average. You know, the people tend to to be just a little bit more optimistic and a little bit use a little bit more information available to them um, when they're in a better mood. Um, now, obviously, hot and cold emotions make a big difference, and um, you know, we can all uh, talk about ways to to uh, encourage people to be careful not to make a, a, a decision when they're uh, under stress of some kind, whether it's anger or, or jealousy or any other kind of uh, of emotion. Um, but the milder moods are uh, more subtle, and many times people don't understand um, that that they're feeling these kinds of things. The other sort of mild thing that people often feel is, you know, the feeling of being left out or of regret. And so this this fear of being left out or the fear of regret, anticipated regret, means that people will sometimes do things um, to follow the herd. They'll do what everyone else is doing. So, you know, house prices are going up, so I think I should buy a house. Stock prices are going up, or more particularly, uh, you know, dot-com stocks are going up, so I think I should buy dot-com stocks. Um, and we, we see this a lot when, when people feel like, well, everybody else is doing it. There must be some, some wisdom to this fact that everyone else is doing it, so I'm going to join into the sort of safety and numbers idea. Again, it's more emotional than, than purely rational, um, you know, using information to make choices. Um, how do you think about this? I mean, honestly, the emotional stuff is some of the hardest to, um, to think about how it affects these kinds, the kinds of programs, the financial education programs. Um, but one of the things you can always work on is help people understand that emotions affect their choices. And it's particularly true with 
financial choices because they are oftentimes so emotionally balanced. Um, you know, thinking about retirement can bring up different kinds of emotions. Thinking about borrowing to buy something you really want, something, you know, a new car or something that makes you very happy might bring up different kinds of emotions. Um, so, you know, we always, we always are um, exposed to these different kinds of feelings. And, you know, obviously people are more aware of their visceral feelings, but they're not always aware of how they uh, might react to some of these more subtle feelings. And the herd instinct is a particularly challenging one. Um, you know, everybody else is doing it. Isn't you know, we, we tell our kids probably this all the time. Isn't a good reason to make a decision. But you know, we we all are, are we face this. We face these sort of subtle um, issues of fearing regret, feeling being left behind or left out, and making these choices based on, based on those kinds of that kind of uh, that kind of feeling. And so, just making people more self-aware of that can be one strategy. Um, Again, it's oftentimes easier to start with the more visceral feelings because people get that and then start to help them think about how some of these more, um, you know, more subtle feelings might also influence some of their, their thinking. Um, you know, oftentimes the, the herd instinct is one that people are aware of even as they're doing it. Um, but they, they sort of do it anyway. So this, you know, I don't want to be left behind. I don't want to have this, um, anticipation. They, they, they fear this anticipation of, of having some kind of regret. Um, another thing we've seen in a few studies is that how you present a particular option. So um, in the psychology literature, they talk about priming. You know, if you can prime people to think more positively um, before they do something, they're more likely to think about it in a different way. And there's a program actually with um, sign-ups for um, food stamps where in one particular state it was a particularly onerous kind of form that you had to get through. And, you know, the normal process was you just got some really you know, brown paper instructions, and you had to sort of, you know, grind through the document. The other one sort of talked about all the benefits of this program and how you got through this particular, you know, that this particular form was designed to be able to make sure that you qualified and that, you know, you'd be able to help that you kind of get and um, sort of help people visualize uh, how much better off they might be if they got through the process, and they're much more likely to get through the, the form and fill it out. Um, so just a simple way to sort of frame the information in a more positive light, to think more positively about the future and about what the benefits might be of getting through this activity, and they were more likely to, to get through that sign-up process. Um, again, these are very um, sort of subtle, and I'm, I'm not sure this is an area where um, we have strong strategies developed, but I think it's one to, it's an important one to consider and think about because it, it clearly has some big impacts on the way that people think about, think about information and think about the choices they're about to make. Any questions on the emotional side? Okay, so the last um, last topic I want to talk about real well, in the last fifteen minutes or so is this probably most famous um, of issues in, in behavioral economics that um, was brought up by these two psychologists, two Israeli psychologists, um, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, who um, were working in, in Israel in the 60s and 70s, particularly looking at the way that fighter pilots were making their decisions in combat and, you know, the kinds of, of information they were using and how they were using information. Um, and they began to really think differently about what economists were saying about how people value different kinds of, of gains and losses. So, you know, what the risks of choice A might be versus choice B. And, you know, typically we would we would predict that people would... Um, you know, go for the option that had the, the biggest expected payoff. And yet we found that people weren't always going for the biggest expected payoff. And one of the main reasons why 
um, these psychologists, and, and they actually, one of them, the, the, the surviving one, Daniel Kahneman, won the uh, Nobel Prize for economics, uh, even though he's a psychologist, was because he, he began to, to put a finer point on the fact that we avoid losses. And we'll work hard to avoid a loss. And in fact, we'll work twice as hard to avoid a loss as we will to get the same amount of money as a gain. Um, so we think really differently about gains and losses. And they, it's called prospect theory. And essentially it means that the pain of $100 that we lose is is not the equivalent of the gain that we get from the joy of $100 we gain. Um, so the loss is more painful than the gain. And people work a lot harder to avoid a loss in a, in a number of different contexts. <clears throat> There's lots of examples of this where, you know, people might value something differently if, if they have it in their pocket versus if it's uh, something that they don't yet own. Um, you know, that um, that you might value a concert ticket differently than a $20 bill. You might value, um, you know, that if you had to get a $1,000 refund on your taxes, you might respond to that differently than a $1,000 uh uh, tax bill, you know, you had to write a check for a thousand dollars. You know, they're both a thousand dollars, but that thousand dollar check you had to write out is more painful if you were to convert that to a gain on the other side. Um, so people work in the, in the studies they've shown that people worked about twice as hard to avoid a loss as to get a similarly sized gain. They, they want to avoid the losses that that um, significantly. And this is very helpful to understand why people think do things like. Um, buy insurance or, um, you know, other kinds of activities where they're trying to protect them, protect themselves against the loss. Um, and it also, to some extent, can explain savings. You know, savings for some people might feel like a loss. It's a loss of income in the present. And so people might not want to put away money from the present <laughs> that they could use today. And that feels like a loss. They might not want to do that. Um, so there's, there's lots of ways in which this prospect theory of this unequal weighting of gains and losses um, could play out. Um, how do you think about this in, in the context of what you're doing? And the main thing to help people understand is, is this idea of mental accounting, that we think about money as different pockets in our heads. Um, so we probably all do this to some extent with our, um, you know, our fund money versus our rent money. You know, we, we have our money that's our needs and our wants, and we sort of break it up that way. Um, you know, we segregate accounts. But people also need to understand that they treat benefits and um, costs in different ways, depending on whether they're a gain or a loss. Um, you know that. You know, for example, it's very common for car dealers to have a car sell at the sticker price and then give you a rebate. Um, you know that rebate feels like somehow money in your pocket. Um, whereas if they just cut the price of the car uh, to a lower level, it, it doesn't seem like as much of a gain. Um, so we, we, you know, we frequently see advertisers or marketers trying to take advantage of these kind of benefits. Um, you know, you can think about this as well as um, when you when you think about people going to an education program or signing up for a savings program. I mean, even how you pitch the the particular activity or the product is it is it a gain or is it a loss? Is it something that is money from their pocket or time from their day, um, or is it some kind of a benefit, some kind of a gain that they that they can achieve? And just taking part in this particular thing, um, avoid a penalty, which people might actually feel like feels like a loss and they want to try to avoid, um, or as an incentive. People might work harder to avoid the penalty than to be awarded an incentive. Um, so it's it's a challenging one to implement oftentimes, but just think about sort of, you know, gains and losses in terms of time and money 
and how people might pull that apart. The, the other example that's a lot easier to implement is to help people think about um, their spending and their saving. The, this last year, the uh, National Income Tax Coalition did a campaign where they said, spend some, save some. So thinking about your tax refund, divide it up into the portions that are savings and the portions that is, that is spending. And, um, you know, helping people make those choices in advance to say, okay, I think I'm going to get, you know, roughly $1,000, about half of them from saving and about half of them from spending. Um, so that um, can some way sort of offset the loss of saving by having a little bit of spending um, so that people are more likely to, to take that bargain. Um, so again, I, I, you know, a lot of these ideas are very much in development and it's in, some of these are harder to apply um, to our field than others. But the main point is that we have to think a bit harder about how people perceive um, perceive information and perceive the decisions they're making. That that you know, for example, gains and losses might be viewed differently. That emotion really matters. That whatever the default option is might be valued more highly than even better alternatives that might exist out there. And that how we present information has has quite a bit of of, of import. And in fact. Um, you know, providing more vivid information in a more timely way might be more powerful than, than many other things. And then finally, this whole issue of self-control and how do even people who are well-informed, who are well-educated, um, who have the information at their fingertips stick to their plan um, and not betray their future selves and coming up with strategies to help people become more sophisticated about those choices. Um, and also, you know, to recognize their own family so that they can realize when they need to be more cautious, when they need to put, put on constraints, um, and to, con you know, in some ways control their own behavior. There's a link at the bottom of the brief um, for a paper that was put together by um, the Annie Casey Foundation by a person from the Aspen Institute um, that really thought a bit about um, how do you um, encourage programs that are involved, particularly programs designed to help low-income people build financial capacity and build financial assets. Um, how do they um, how do they implement some of these ideas? And so it's in much of what we talked about here today about the power of defaults and the, of avoiding losses and avoiding too many choices, um, keeping the sort of number of hassles and hoops that people have to jump to um, to a minimum, thinking about how people identify a particular opportunity and is, is it part of how they view themselves to be part of a particular program or part of a particular um, educational effort. This whole idea of mental accounting and segregating um, money that feels like it's fun money versus money that's uh, more important uh, for our, our more um, you know necessary needs from day to day. Um, the issue of, of peers and how we think about the herd instinct and how we have become cognizant of the fact that we're being affected by the choices that other people make around us. Um, and then it goes into some choices about how you might frame programs, how you might market programs, how you might simplify programs um, to encourage better take-up rates um, and ultimately better impact on clients. So that's that's just a three-page um, memo that's at the bottom of the, the brief. You can follow that link uh, from there. Most of the other um, sites here, these are all papers that are in published journals. Um, so if you just Google them, you'll generally find a, a public accessible version of them. Um, some of them might be in um, in journals that are behind firewalls, and if they are, just let me know, and I can I can download them from from the UW side and, and help you get access to those. So, any questions or discussion?
This is Karen and and maybe I'm off field, but um, one of the comments I heard last week from another professional in the community is that per perhaps people should be looking at their tax exemptions um, if we're going to be having more withheld from our paychecks because of the health care and pension plans. Perhaps people should be revisiting that. Um, does that kind of fit into some of this discussion? Because sometimes when you start a job, you just start where you are and you don't go in and look at any of those things. That's right. No, when when we um, there have been studies done that um, you know the the most important time when people make a lot of decisions about their future is when they sign up for that first job. And so we're asking to make a whole lot of choices that involve this opt-in. You know, you have to sign up for this and that and choose this and the other thing. And you're stressed, you're, you know, going to, you want to get through this as quickly as possible. And, you know, typically there's not a lot of support to make those decisions at the time, at point in time. And so it actually leads to some pretty poor decision making. Um, and there's very few opportunities to come back and revisit it again because it's not at the top of the mind. It's not something that, that we sort of revisit in any regular way. Um, so in fact, that this whole HR system we have is, is not designed to really facilitate great decision making. Um, you know, coming up with some way to help people revisit those choices, say, uh, you know, three months later or at a regular point in time every year, um, I think could be really valuable. Uh, it's one of those things that, that hasn't been well defined, I think, as a, as a field. Okay, thanks. Has anybody had any experience with the nudge book or any of these other you know, sort of pop pop culture kind of uh, behavioral economics texts that are out there? Uh, this is Peggy, and I've read all three, of course. Um, and I, I probably of all three, I liked the predictably irrational the most, just because it was a fun read. Um, but I also wanted to say I had a little slack in my string over the weekend, so on Netflix I had watched um, Freakonomics, which is a movie that came out a year or two ago based on the book. And that's kind of the same idea behind some of these books. So if you haven't seen it, it's just a, a fun, quick movie to watch, too. Just gets you thinking. Peggy, what was the name of that? Um, the movie based on the book was Freakonomics, like economics, but a freak. So, Michael, have you seen or read that one? I have not. Um, I'm familiar. I'm blanking on the guy's name. I'm familiar with the um, the guy who wrote the book called Freakonomics, but I'm not familiar with the movie. They were both Stephen somebody's. Stephen and Stephen. I'm blanking on it, but yeah, no, that's a great. I'll I'll have to in my when I get some slack in my time, pick that up. Yeah, just watch it at work. <laughs> and Peggy, the book was called Predictably Rational. Um, it's the resources listed in Michael's uh, issue brief. It was Predictably Irrational by Dan Ariely. Okay, thanks. And, and note, footnote number one. So the, the biggest critique of this field is that it's just a handful of anomalies and that it's difficult to say what it means for policy or practice. And I think that's really where the field is trying to figure out now is how do we actually implement some of these ideas. Some of them, like defaulting people into 401ks instead of forcing them to opt in, um, are relatively simple and, and those have caught on. 
Um, other ones, like the reminders, are a bit more challenging to implement or self-control problems. I mean, you you know the time and energy it takes to coach somebody. Um, so, it's, you know, there's the it's not always a simple solution or an easy solution, but understanding these concepts can help us understand why people fail to do the things that we think they might otherwise, or why we ourselves do it too. Why do we fail to act in the ways that we know might be beneficial? Um, so it's, and again, I would say this is an evolving field, and um, it oftentimes just challenges us to think harder about the way we set up programs and the way we implement our strategies. Um, I was just thinking about people and some of the conversations I've had lately, and the more I talk to people who are using, um, like, prepaid debit cards and instead of a credit card, um, I mean, the more that all that makes sense to me because they just don't trust themselves if they have the money, so they really want to limit how much they're going to spend. Um, or talking with somebody who um, had their bank limit how many debit withdrawals they could make from their checking account every week. Um, so, you know, anything that can get people to put some of these restraints on them um, are, you know, things we could recommend in our programming, too. Great. Any other questions, comments before we start to wrap up? Just an observation as you were talking about each individual um, concept, Michael. I could either picture myself or someone I knew or something in the past that I could actually relate that to happening with someone. That's good, I think. <laughs> no, I guess, you know, that's the why this this work has been popular, at least in the process, because it does, you know, much more than a cost-benefit curve in economics sort of relate to the way that we actually behave every day um, and sometimes helps us understand why we do the things we do. Great. So our next um, lunchtime learning call will be May 9th, it's a Monday at noon. We're going to be talking about getting back on your feet. Um, so this is uh, thinking about ways that, that people recover from things like foreclosure or bankruptcy or uh, a, a loss of job, coming off unemployment, those kinds of things. Um, so, uh, you know, just a sort of understanding some of the some of the important issues around credit repair and other topics that might be important to think about. Um, I also remind people that next Monday at 1 o'clock is the Building Buck series, and I think it'll be the last one of this year's um, rounds. It'll be on retirement planning and saving. Uh, maybe a hot topic given current events. Uh, so uh, hopefully you'll be able to tune into that. And I thank you all for your time today and hope you have a great week.